0: Deanna Violet Coco is another of my heroes. She stands alongside the Director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University in the US, Professor Alex N. Halliday. Both are champions, both are heroes for different reasons. Halliday does his work through the Earth Institute at Columbia University, while Violet, who was once an academic studying philosophy at the University of Melbourne, has committed herself to activism. She's actively doing what she can to slow the climate crisis. Among others I admire is Joelle Gerges, who is a professor at the Australian National University, and she has written a couple of critical books. But my list could go on and on forever, and so I won't do that. Let's just say you have found the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, they're still on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Violet Coco is a mild-mannered, quietly spoken person, and the last you'd expect to see out on the street, protesting about the climate crisis. Beyond that, though, she's always been a cooperative person. She's always returned my calls, And she was a guest a while back at Shepparton's Beneath the Wisteria. And we did that via Zoom because it was much easier for Coco. And you'll find a link to that Zoom event in the show notes. (music) Members of uh, Friends of the Earth Australia and their friends will gather in Melbourne on Wednesday. That's Wednesday, May 17 at 10.30am through to about 11 o'clock to protest outside the Japanese consulate. The protest is called Community Action Stop Japan's Dirty Energy Plan. Promoting the May 17 event, the Friends of the Earth have said the Japanese government is using its G7 presidency to promote the continued use of fossil fuels and undermine the transition to clean energy. In February, Japan approved a new energy strategy that will drive the expansion of fossil fuels across Asia, including in Australia, right at the time when we must phase them out. This May, Japan will host the G7 Summit in Hiroshima. Our allies in Japan's climate movement are working hard to stop their government financing polluting fossil fuels and derailing the energy transition. This is a critical moment, the Friends of the Earth say, for us to show up in solidarity. They then argue that we should all join Friends of the Earth, the Climate Action Network Australia and regional community members facing the expansion of coal to hydrogen for community action outside the Japanese consulate on Wednesday, May 17, at 10.30am. The speakers will include Dr Malcolm McKelvey, a Yarrigan GP and a Healthy Futures member, Erin Ryan, who is a Senior International Climate Campaigner, Climate Action Network Australia, Pat Simons, International Liaison Friends of the Earth Australia, and several others. You'll find details for the event in the show notes. Australia's Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has given the go-ahead for a coal mine in Queensland. And that approval was the subject of some conversation on the ABC program, that's Australian Broadcasting Commission, the program named The Drum. You can have a listen to that conversation now.
1: Minister Tanya Plibersek has approved the first new coal mine since Labor took office last year. Environmentalists have slammed the decision which greenlights the Isaac River mine in central Queensland. The mine is expected to produce around 3 million tonnes of metallurgical coal over five years to be used in steelmaking. The government says there were no grounds to reject the application.
0: It was at this point that a statement from a spokesperson for Tanya Plibersek was read out to the audience.
2: The Albanese government has to make decisions in accordance with the facts and the national environmental law. That's what happens on every project and that's what's happened here. Since the election, we've doubled renewable energy approvals to a record high. The government will continue to consider each project on a case-by-case basis under the law.
1: James, with your hat on as Director of the Forest Research Foundation and your extensive body of work, of research, I wonder what did you make of this decision, like like yesterday afternoon evening, from the minister Tanya Plibersek, and how much of this is about balancing the need for energy during a power transition, while also dealing and mitigating climate change?
3: Yeah, look, I really do wish that I uh, we had the technology to, you know, to press a button and respond to a renewable world, but we don't. We, we run a very complex economy, part of a very complex interwoven world, and we will continue to rely on non-renewable sources of energy, at least for a while. The, the problem, I, I feel, is that, um, yeah, so, yeah, so I'm not surprised that it happened. Um, I think we're about three decades behind where we should be. I, I wish both federal, I wish the federal governments had been able to get together and, and create a framework for, to, to um, incentivise innovation in this area. Uh, renewables can do a certain amount we've got seen massive progress in in hydrogen but there is still a long way to go transition wise and um you know i i I, it's it's, it almost feels like these new mines as much as you know we we don't want to see them they have to be part of the mix until we do solve the energy the energy question i don't think there's a a simple solution for it so this is i suppose a necessary evil um you know and i think the other thing is the, the government cannot, you know, no matter where you stand on this stuff, we we can't have a government make decisions uh, based solely on an non- ideological position. So even if even if within the in the Labor government they wanted to say we want no new mines, um, if it meets the guidelines and the legislation and it, it and it and it, it, it achieves what it needs to achieve, then if it ticks all those boxes, then a government I don't think should be in the place to make uh, a decision. For, for simply ideological reasons.
1: Kath, is, is this a necessary evil?
2: I think it's, it's, it's interesting that we continue to kind of politicise this thing that is external. And I kind of go, I understand I'm not sitting here ignorant being like, we need renewable energy now and it's super easy. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. But we don't have an option, you know? And I feel like as a young person we all feel this where it's like, it feels like us against them and we're debating and you know seeing this opinion and that and it's like we don't this is our future we look look at the facts like it's not like oh we need to reduce a bit more and we need to, it's like this is this is this we have to we we literally have to or we will not have a future to continue this discussion it's it's kind of non-negotiable but it seems to be constantly negotiated like it is, and I just find that really disheartening.
1: Jess, this is clearly an emotive mm, conversation. Mm. There's not an easy answer here. Is it, and then you add into this the proximity to the Great Barrier Reef Absolutely. as well?
2: <clears throat> Look, there's two key things here. Uh, People will say, look, this is metallurgical coal, this is coking coal, so it's actually used in steel um, production. So it's not going to be burnt for energy in the in the consumption market. And for some people, they say, well, that's a reason. For industrial reasons, we need to continue. But the International Energy Agency calculates that more methane is actually released by this net coal process. and through this process. And it, the emissions from metallurgical coal are nearly three times higher than from thermal coal. So this is a big... Big impact projects, as so that's the first thing we need to know. The second thing on that uh, steel production process, because James is right, we're not there yet to make a total transition, but uh, steel making using electric arc furnaces is on the increase in much of the world. We should be investing in the technology, in the research, to make sure that we can be there um, when the rest of the world, you know, with the rest of the world, to, to produce mm. steel in that more sustainable electric arc um, uh, procedure. So that's the my first point. My second point is... These actions are inconsistent with the global commitments that we have made. Um, You know, Australia, if you count our scope three emissions from the fossil fuels that we produce and that we export, we are responsible for 5% of global emissions. You know, if it's just our domestic emissions, it's 1.4%. If we count what we export from fossil fuels, 5%. That is way outside outside compared to our population, compared to our economy, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing under Paris, which means that advanced economies have to take the lead in decarbonising. So I'm really disappointed by this because I think it's inconsistent with where we say we are going to be and our responsibilities as a developed nation.
1: Katie, is this the right focus when we're talking about government decision making and investment as we saw elements in, in the budget, or is it in other minerals and other resources and other research and development?
2: Look, you know, this is the the trouble, you know, when you're dealing with, um, you've got a short-term issue versus a long-term solution, and so... I mean obviously I'm keen for us to be championing a clean energy transition and that means critical minerals and I would like to see you know, more investment, I would like to have seen in the federal bu- um, budget recently more investment in those critical minerals that are going to help that clean energy transition or transformation as some people are calling it because we have a lot of capability. I mean Australia, as we saw from the last federal budget, we are benefiting from shipping stuff overseas. Wouldn't it be better if we were shipping stuff that was going to fuel the clean energy transition going? forward.
0: You'll find the link for that episode of The Drum in the show notes. Our next story is a guest essay from the New York Times by Michael E. Weber and the headline for his story is Will Texas Blow Up Its Energy Miracle to Bolster Fossil Fuels? The story begins, Because the Texas energy system is so large and central to the American economy, we all have a shared stake in its energy success. When the Texas grid goes down, Atlanta might not get jet fuel. When Texas gas production freezes up in winter storms, a surprisingly frequent phenomenon, fuel prices spike in Minnesota. And because Texas is by far the nation's largest emitter of greenhouse gases among the states, the country cannot decarbonize its economy without Texas. The Lone Star State has seen rapid growth not only in oil and gas production, but also wind and solid generation a boom that has been justly called the texas miracle
3: my name is james murray i'm the editor-in-chief of business green and delighted to be your host for today's interactive webinar uh, the topic today is building resilience how to adapt to escalating climate impacts escalating climate impacts and there's a bit of a pun in there because obviously we're going to be looking at building climate resilience And of course, one of the core ways in which you have to build climate resilience is through your buildings. And we're going to be looking at the details of how you can strengthen the resilience of your buildings to escalating climate impacts, build the investment case for doing so, and look at some of the different approaches therein. That
0: obviously is the Editor-in-Chief of Business Green, James Murray, talking about the webinar he chaired just recently. You'll find a link for that event in the show notes. And now from the Canberra Times, we have a story by Alex Crow. Aerial images show climate change's effect on snowy mountains. The story begins. Snow patches in the New South Wales Alpine region are melting two weeks earlier in the year than they did 45 years ago, satellite data has revealed. The melting of the last snow patches left in the snowy mountains post-winter, which used to occur in the middle of March, is now occurring at the end of February researchers at the University of Canberra have found. PhD student Phil Campbell said the semi-perennial snow patches occupy just a few square kilometres of the vast alpine landscape. Campbell said they were important to the survival of specialised species of plants which were able to survive buried beneath the patches, growing, reproducing and setting seed when the snow melted away. In countries across Africa and Latin America, Old used cars from places like the US and Europe provide vital access to transportation to people who would otherwise be unable to afford their own vehicles. While this process extends the life of these cars, the practice is not without its problems, in particular with regards to pollution and passenger safety. Here now is a small grab from the Conversation Weekly podcast and you'll find the link to that actual podcast in the show notes. However, I should have mentioned the title of the podcast, it's dangerous and dirty but cheap. Used cars exported from the US and Europe are filling roads in Africa.
2: If you went to see the cherry blossoms in Washington DC this year, you might have been disappointed, but not because the trees weren't beautiful or the weather was bad. The simple problem was logistics. On one particularly nice day in March, drivers got stuck on their way into the park for up to four hours. Some started to tweet about their frustration, and others called their local radio station. Many of them never even got out of their cars. Alex, you wrote about this incident a few weeks ago. What went wrong?
3: Well, it was a perfect storm of traffic conditions. It was peak cherry blossom. Basically, every year there's this period when the cherry blossoms all bloom at once. It's very beautiful, and that weekend is the most popular time to go see them, obviously. And basically, every driver in the D.C. metro area was trying at the exact same time to go to the exact same place, which is around the Tidal Basin down by the (laughs) Monuments and East Potomac Park down by Haynes Point, which is essentially a peninsula in the Potomac where drivers were trapped basically, in the road that does a circle around it. And perhaps that could have been avoided if they had closed that one road to traffic instead of allowing everyone to drive on it.
0: Christopher Waller is the board governor of America's Federal Reserve, and I'm not sure whether he's arrogant or ignorant, but he's made some amazing comments. The prevailing view of science is that What's happening in the world at the moment could destabilise everything in the world as we know it. Meanwhile, a story from Reuters about Waller is worth reading. It has the headline, Climate Change Not a Serious Risk to Financial Stability, Feds Waller Says. The story begins, and it has the date line, Washington, May 11. Climate change does not pose such significantly unique or material financial stability risks that the Federal Reserve should treat it separately in its supervision of the financial system, Fed Governor Christopher Waller said on Thursday in a detailed rebuttal of demands for climate initiatives from the U.S. Central Bank. Climate change is real, but I do not believe it poses a serious risk to the safety and soundness of large banks or the financial stability of the United States, Waller told an economic conference in Spain. Finally, we have a story from the Melbourne Age by Amanda Hooten. The headline for the story is We Thought We'd Saved the Whales. Were we wrong? The story begins. It is minus five degrees. A balmy summer's afternoon in Antarctica. The sky is white and the sea is glossy black. We've been sitting in this black rubber zodiac for almost three hours and I've begun to be wimply conscious of the frostbite on my left foot. Red and itching beneath my rubber boot and three layers of sock. The minke whale surfaces about five minutes from the boat. A moment later, it's right beneath us, pewter and bronze in the dark sea, only a hand's breadth below the surface. This is utterly unexpected. I've been here almost a week, and I've seen many whales, often close up, their dark backs curving out of the water, their humped blowholes opening and closing but this is 10 metres of a creature less than 3 feet away, as clear and close as my daughter, skimming across the surface of her backyard pool. I could touch it with my fingertips without wetting my palm. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Now please don't forget to check out the show notes as you'll find links to all those stories I've mentioned, plus many others. Also, I'd urge you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be automatically alerted every time I publish a new episode. Beyond that, I'd love to hear from you, so you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Please contact me, because I need to know from you what you think about this podcast. Also, please feel free to share with your friends. In fact, I'd love you to share with your friends because we all need to know all we possibly can about how we respond to the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet, is fighting a great battle. So please take care.